primary care knowledge-based neurodevelopmental disorders. Hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Based. Um, today we have a new episode for you and we are speaking to consultant psychiatrist Dr. Raja Mukherjee about neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, he's got a particular interest in fetal alcohol spectrum disorders um, and that's the main slant of our talk today. Um, he does refer to that as FASD throughout the episode just to be aware. We start by asking what neurodevelopmental disorders are and what neurodiversity is. Um, And then we briefly talk about some of the more common disorders. Autism, which you'll hear us referring to as ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder, and ADHD, which is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, um, Dyspraxia, and Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder. Yep, it is a really in-depth discussion with quite a lot of nuance um, and for a little bit of reference um, we've got a couple of terms that we just thought that we would highlight so etiological which is causing or contributing to the development of a disease or condition and executive function which is mental processes that enable us to plan focus attention remember instructions and basically juggle multiple tasks successfully we talk about useful ways of opening up the conversation with families about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and some advice about managing families waiting for a diagnosis um, as well as getting his take-home points that he wanted to get across in this chat. Yeah, and we'll be back at the end for our learning points, and we hope you enjoy the discussion. So, Roger, would you mind introducing yourself and explaining a little bit about your current role? Sure. So, I'm uh, Roger Mukherjee. I'm a consultant neurodevelopmental psychiatrist here down in Surrey. I'm the clinical lead for adult neurodevelopmental services, but I also run set up and I run the National FASD service. Uh, I'm also an honorary professor at the University of Salford, where I have my academic research group alongside uh, Professor Penny Cook. We do various different projects. We're just about to start a parenting intervention uh, project from September. So that's me. Brilliant summary of what sounds like a very busy schedule. Uh, Yeah, can be. (laughs) Um, So this episode's all about neurodevelopmental disorders. If you sort of start us at the beginning, uh, what are we talking about when we say neurodevelopmental disorders and how do we start to categorise them? If you're going to break it down as to what a neurodevelopmental disorder is, they're neurological disorders effectively that have a developmental origin. That's the simple thing. And so unlike, say, a dementia where you have a typically functioning brain, which then bits of it degenerate for whatever reason, you can end up in the same place. But ultimately, this is about a developmental condition related to the brain, which starts early in childhood and and progresses from there. Uh, It may be a static situation. It may be a progressive situation. They vary as to the nature of the different conditions. Now, once you've got that basic understanding that it's a neurological difficulty, which may have attributes in other parts of the body as well, because then you start to think about, well, how do they fit? So are they genetic in origin, for example? Are they teratogenic? So for example, Down syndrome is an etiology. Uh, Fragile X is an etiology. If it's teratogenic, fetal alcohol is a is a um, etiology. The, they're the classic causes of the brain damage, and they lead to different levels and natures and degree of presentation. Now, the more severely damaged the brain is, and more of the pathways in the brain that start to get affected, then you start to see the more classic neurodevelopmental outcomes that we're familiar with, which are things like your autisms, your your 
ADHDs, your dyspraxias, your dyslexias, they're the outcome diagnosis that we commonly see and that we can measure and identify. And they are where the brain pathways are not integrating information properly, where they're not functioning in a way that allows typical function. And so you end up with these conditions that we call neurodevelopmental disorders. But you can separate out those which are etiological and those which are outcome disorders. And the relationship between them is always the brain underneath it and what is happening to that. Um, we're interested, from my point of view, as from the behavioral aspects of the brain, not the, what a neurologist would be interested in. But ultimately, it's coming at the same bit. We're just not sophisticated enough to do what neurology does yet in terms of behavior, because probably the... That what we need to understand that is far more integrated in terms of different parts of the brain doing different things rather than a single point. So in terms of a stroke, you think about your verticus brocus areas in terms of the dysphagias that you tend to get. When you think about ADHD and just one component of it, if we think about the default mode network, which is a series of pathways in the midbrain, you know, you then start to see, well, that's what makes you daydream that makes you drift off and if that's hyperactive you're more likely to have inattentive adhd that's just one of the theories behind it so these are the kind of things that we start to get into and then you can get into well what is it that the neural pathways in terms of um, neurochemicals down regulating or up regulating parts of the brain how does that have an impact and so the relationship between all these things starts to get really complex and interesting that level of sophistication, I don't think we're really there yet. Um, and so what we tend to do is to measure either those causes that I talked about or the outcomes and then think about the relationships. Thanks. Um, and there's other terms that kind of um, float around that people might not be familiar with and it might be useful just um, covering at the top of the episode, um, just thinking about things like neurodiversity or divergence. Um, are they different? Um, how are they categorised? Can you give us a little bit of an overview of that? So... This is the thing that people are starting to think about is it's all terminology and it's all to do with where on the spectrum of presentation with my brain not working quite typically. I, but none of us are typical. I'm mildly dyslexic. I, I have visual processing difficulties. So I process visual information slower than other people. So don't play double with me because I will always lose. I refuse to play it. Um, if anybody, nobody's played it, what you have to do is you have to match the cards in your hand to one that goes down. And my kids always win because they process information so quicker, much quicker than me. I take longer, but I can take the information in. And so that is about understanding your own bit. So the only reason I know this is that we test all the new tools that we get on each of each other. And so that we kind of worked it out. Um, what I didn't understand is some of the earlier stuff when I was a kid where I didn't keep up with people and because you can go away and learn it later on you know clearly I'm intelligent enough to be able to do okay in life but it, that those little things kind of get on top of you so that's where we start to get into what that neurodivergent role now is it a disorder well I've obviously done okay so it's not affected me I just take a little bit longer to do it and so that's the place where we get into is what do we consider typical function what do we consider a difficulty and where does it really start to have an impact on somebody to where we call it a disorder so when we're talking about neurodivergent you know that's moving away from what we've defined as being typical functioning and so that's where we start to get into this whole concept of neurodivergent neurodiversity in terms of the differences between individuals and the typical functioning at its extremes where it's really damaging and really causing people problems is where they cannot function and it's pervasive in their life and they have a adaptive 
deficit, which means that they just don't function because society demands of them things that they simply can't do. Uh, and when you start to get into that, that's where you start to see it. So if you talk to people who are on the autistic spectrum, for example, and this is almost a direct quote from somebody I uh, spoke to recently who, who works with us, he was saying, I may not understand a neurotypical individual, but I can understand other people with autism because I experience what they have. They just can't put themselves into the neurotypical world. And it's the same kind of thing. It's that empathy mm. towards people who they don't experience that other part of their life. So, But that divergence is as where you're getting away from that. And what we're defining is typical difficulty and then getting into the disorder level, which is what we lead as diagnostic criteria. That's incredible in terms of that quote you just said as well. I don't think we teach this very well, because I think one of the things that you get into is when you start to get into what we're actually talking about, and you're actually realizing this is about understanding brain pathology, how that works and how it actually pervades into typical people. You know, you start to get away from this is 1% of the population to nearly 15% of the population potentially have different types of neurodivergent presentations from what is typical. Um, and again, you can find a whole load of people. So Canna's early research, if you look at autism, for example, he did a case study of 13 people in 19, I think it was 47 or 43, I get the two dates missed up, but he did a very, he's 13 people and 11 of them were doctors because he basically did case studies of the parents. The parents were all, um, had, atypical traits and the kids were diagnosed with autism and these were aloof classic autism not what we understand as a broader spectrum now um, and you can see that that anacastic so that need for being slightly obsessional that you find in a lot of doctors for example because you have to be in order to do the work to make sure you've not missed anything that's a common trait in the doctor but then you can see that that can be exacerbated in subsequent generations through uh, genetics and other aspects that go with it so you, you start to really get into it that, that there's a lot going on here that we're only just really starting to understand and, and brush the surface with and there's a lot more still to learn and to do yeah and you have so you've alluded to quite a few of the individual diagnoses um, along the way so far so things like autism adhd um, we wondered if you'd be able to um, take a basic um, slant at um, some of those common diagnoses sure so autism is probably the most common. It gets a lot of the press. It used to be a triad of impairments in terms of stereotypic movements, social interaction skills and communication problems. It's now moved to a dyad, which is the restrictive and repetitive patterns of behavior and the social communication aspects. Now, it's the impairment in social communication that is core to that in terms of how people interact. Um, and it's that reciprocal two-way interaction that we see and is is such a big part of human survival and functioning um, and you break it down to three components and that is reciprocal a two-way not i'm talking at you but a proper two-way back and forth conversation that is natural and not rehearsed and not masked which is where we get the more common phenotype in women where they they plan they rehearse they manage things which leads to when you add it to problems with nonverbal communication, which is about your expressive factors or your receptive ability to understand other people. People can't see me, but I'm gesturing a lot. And so that there's a there's something about that is what we do. You guys are nodding back at me on the on the video feed, which you other people can't hear. But you know, that's the the natural bit that we get from people, which facilitates that two-way conversation and that interaction. When you're not getting that, that leads to problems. And then the final component is friendships, is that then you have to have 
natural friendships that are not maintained by other people. So these are some of the subtleties of it. You add that into restrictive and repetitive patterns of behavior, which are to do with motor movements, stereotyped interests, uh, resistance to change, and then sensory processing, which is the new bit. These are all from DSM-5. ICD-11 is coming out, and we're going to start using it from next year, but broadly is using the similar kind of approaches to those. So that's autism, which is the most common, where you find that that social interaction bit and that need for, for but the, it's not even the need for it because actually there's a lot of people who are autistic who really want to be engaged with people and they're actually more vulnerable to mental health issues such as depression, anxiety and wider stuff because they can see the world around them. They just don't know what to do to engage in a neurotypical world and that causes its own difficulties and a lot of people go through life not understanding themselves um, and understanding themselves especially in adult worlds is so important because it helps them to know what to do how to keep themselves safe and what not to expect to themselves because if you put too much expectation on yourselves and you're constantly failing you're going to get depressed uh, and that's a really common presentation it, it happens in younger kids as well is that they don't understand why they feel different and why they can't deal with the demands placed upon them and so those kind of things are what you try to recognize well before we move on Talk me through those two bits because you said it used to be a triad of a so the diagnosis of autism. It used to be the certain particular movements and then a social. So the triad of impairment that we used to talk about that was the nineteen eighties concept. Ah, okay. So if we talk about where autism came from, autism, as I spent mentioned before, canotype autism was that aloof child. I call it Hollywood autism, in terms of the aloof child who sits in the corner, doesn't interest in the world. You know that we're on the classic films that we all used to see, not really interested in anybody. Mm. That's not what we recognise as autism now, because we started to recognise actually there's a lot more to it. So we don't subdivide things into Asperger's syndrome classic autism, atypical autism, because actually it just all merges together and they overlap in the symptom traits. And so what we've come to realize is that there's a spectrum of presentation and you're somewhere on it. And these are the core traits mm -hmm. that you have to look for. And actually, just because you've got some traits doesn't mean that you've got autism because you could have that difficulty, but in the right situation, you function perfectly well. Um, and, and so therefore it's it's a difficulty level of that neurodiversity presentation, um, not the disorder pervasive level that affects you everywhere in all situations. Mm -hmm. With people with autism, it is everywhere all the time. And whilst you can learn how to manage it and how to mask it, it's still there if you dig under the surface. Um, and that's the crucial bit of it. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Sorry, I, I interrupted. Tell us about ADHD. <laughs> right. So ADHD is probably the most common single neurodevelopmental presentation out there. Rates of about 6% in, in children, about 3% or 3% in adults. So it does go into remission in adults in terms of the severity of the presentation reducing. And some people will mature in their neurological pathway, so they're not presenting with ADHD symptoms anymore, especially the hyperactivity often will reduce. But there are two broad aspects to it. There's the inattention side, and then there's a the hyperactivity and impulsivity side. And again, we tend to use DSM criteria more so, and it's looking to say, well, are you forgetful? Are you um, able to organize yourself? Are you easily distracted? Can you always lose things? You know, are you putting something down and wandering off and forgetting what you're doing? Are you always going back and looking for things? It's very 
common side of it. And it's far more common than the, the neurodevelopmentally bit around the inattentive side. But when you look at the hyperactivity side, that's less common and that's seen in a fewer groups. And so there were studies done in the early days of this where they looked at hyperkinetic disorder compared to the full ADHD was in the States. And the rates in the UK were much lower, but they were looking for hyperkinetic presentations. And that is, is less common. That's hyperkinetic. They're moving movements. Yeah, they're always yeah. on the move. They're on, they're always on the move. They need to be fidgeting. They never sit still. They're climbing on things, that kind of stuff. It's far more obvious. The quiet ones, the ones who get missed, the ones who are inattentive, who sit quietly, just distracted, daydreaming, um, they're not causing a problem in classrooms. And so they don't, don't get picked up. And then they come down the line and they're not achieving their potential. The thing with this is treatments work really well. You know, this is one situation where the number needed to treat in order to sort out ADHD is actually quite low. And if you actually can get medication in or learn strategies, there's a lot of really positive things you can do about that compared to other things. You know, for example, there is no medication that will treat AD autism doesn't go away that is that is there um, you can learn how to manage it you can put things around you can support it you can deal with some of the associated comorbidities for example the anxiety the depressions and the other things that go with it but it doesn't treat the core symptoms where this the medication actually treats the core symptoms of the condition so that's really important so making a diagnosis is really important from a medical management point of view because you're actually you've got the potential to do something about it um, so that's adhd you mentioned dyspraxia. So dyspraxia is probably the proper term is developmental coordination disorder, DCD. And so you're leading with problems with motor movements and those kind of aspects. And a lot of it is observed and we don't diagnose it that often because there's a lot of occupational therapy involvement in terms of looking at the mobility, the how they move, their, their fine motor skills and those kind of things. It's not something that we assess in as doctors as much as other professionals. It can be done in that and a multidisciplinary group. But then there's a lot of comorbid presentation because if you've got an area of the brain that is affecting your motor movement, it also has a lot of potential to affect executive function, working memory, and other factors because there's an etiological cause below it that affects more than just the motor pathways. Um, and so there's, it's got a very high link to comorbidities, to autism, ADHD, for example. Um, so those are the kind of things that you will often see as a comorbid presentation. And then you get a hierarchy of what you're kind to go and diagnose with people and trying to work it all through. But it is a common presentation. Same with dyslexia, that's a visual processing aspect. And But again, is more educational. So it's assessed more in an educational setting than in a health setting. And so there are health-related conditions that we tend to see more commonly. Um, and then there's others ones which are to do with how do you function, how do you manage, and how do you learn? And so the dyslexia of the world tend to be seen more in schools and managed there. Whereas the ADHD, ASDs, because there's a medical component to it, quite often it goes through the, the medical referral routes much more commonly. That's not to say there aren't medical referral routes for these other things. After that, then you get into your, to your etiological conditions. Uh, and they're the things that cause these kind of presentation. Most common in terms of, not most common, but most recognized is probably Down syndrome in terms of um, being the most recognizable genetic condition, which leads to a neurological deficit, intellectual disability for many, and the wider associated comorbidities. But the most common one, which is by far, and we did the prevalence study in Manchester with my group in Salford, is fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And that's running about 4% 
of the population. Um, so the study we did showed that we definitely found 2%. Um, and if we take the probable cases where there's bits of information missing, but we highly suspected it, that would be more like 4%. And that would fit with international literature. So it's not a rare condition uh, in terms of cause. And that's the most common cause of a neurodevelopmental presentation. So is that... Is that two to four percent of the population in general will have fetal yeah. alcohol? Yeah, we went, we went, we went into schools and we just looked for it. And these were undiagnosed kids. The other thing that was that these were all kids without a diagnosis. Nine percent of kids we found in schools with an undiagnosed neurodevelopmental disorder, and so a lot of it's going unrecognised, and which is why so much is coming out of the woodwork now because people have sat at home during COVID, they've looked at it and they've realised something's not quite right here, um, and they've said we need to get help for it but that's the other thing that comes into it is the relationship between these things is is if you've got an etiological condition it's a smaller percentage of people with down syndrome for example who also have autism some will most don't there's going to be a big proportion of people who we see who have got fasd who do have some sort of social communication disorder or executive function deficit and adhd the problem you're going to have is if you even if i say 50 percent say of um, people with FASD etiologically will also have a comorbid diagnosis of ADHD, 50% won't. Mm. And then what do you do with those people? And that's where the neurodivergence, neurodevelopmental bit comes into it again, because then what you're getting into is, well, what do we label this individual with? How do we explain their presentation? Because they know they're different. They know that they're not fitting into what people are asking them to do. They know that something is not functioning in a typical manner and what people are expecting them to do. Well, they can't put the finger on it. They want to be told what the issues are. Now, there's two ways of doing that. And this is a debate that's always happens is, do you give a diagnosis or do you make a formulation? The reality is you need both. So explain that a, bit, a little bit. Okay. So a diagnosis is in the medical model. Um, it is you go to see your doctor, you say, I've got a cough doc. They, they auscultate, check, they listen to your chest. You know, they send you for, for various tests. Tests come back, you make a diagnosis and you give the right treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the medical model of care. Formulation is, it doesn't tell you about the person. It doesn't tell you they're living in a, in a, a, in a hovel with damp and that actually that's why they're getting pneumonia all the time. Is, and so it doesn't tell you the other bits. So to understand the individual, you have to formulate the stuff around it. And so... A formulation brings you more about what's causing it, what the prevention aspects are, because the whole treatment aspects is about understanding the individual. But in the diagnosis also guides you towards some specific areas of treatment within the context of that. So the two things go hand in hand, really. Um, and to do it well, you do both. But some people still debate about we're only going to do a diagnosis, we're not going to do formulation. Some people say we're going to do a formulation, we won't do diagnosis. And it's a debate that happens, and it happens a lot in the neurodevelopmental world um, because of the fact that people don't want to give labels because they see it stigmatizing, or people want labels because they need it to get access to help. You know, and that tension is just there, and you have to accept it and recognize it. Personally, I'd say best way forward is to actually try and work together and understand the relationship that both of these things have in terms of importance. That's fascinating. Um, can you explain fetal alcohol spectrum disorder to us? Yeah, so fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, it started in 1973, but it started long before that in terms of 
bits of literature being recognized so there was a report in liverpool women's prison in the 1800s talking about women who drunk alcohol in prison who the who their children had effects so you know it's been recognized it's been reported for long periods of time it was first labeled in 1973 by um, a pair called david smith and ken jones um, and they were looking at a First Nations population in the Seattle area, and they identified a specific phenotype, and they wrote a paper in the Lancet, which is classic. Later on, it was identified that there'd been a report similar to that published in a French journal. There was 169, I think, 29 um, cases reported there. So this was starting to show that this isn't just something in one place, that there's more to it. So the first thing that people recognised was these classic facial features. What we've now come to learn is that only represents about two to five percent of the whole group. So it's a very small proportion. It's hardly any. It is. Yeah. And that's the point. But we still define because it's the most recognizable and acceptable bit of it. We define the whole thing by that. And there's a lot of people who, if they don't have facial features, refuse to make a diagnosis. And that's not because it's not there. It's just because it's harder. Um, and and again, it's the same thing about we, we were talking about women in autism before, you know, it's that hidden bit of it that doesn't make it less important. It actually makes it more important to recognize. And, but the difficulty of it means you need to be more trained to be able to do it. So what we started to recognize is that in ni- 1978, there was a paper came out, basically said there are effects to alcohol beyond just the face and they call it fetal alcohol effect. You then in 1996, have a group of uh, medics in America coming together and defining the fetal alcohol spectrum in terms of breaking it down into the people with the most facial features, most recognizable bits, whether it's partial recognition or whether there's absence of facial features called alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. You then have other groups starting to say, well, actually, do you know what? I think you're not quite getting it right. And so you've got different places across the world coming up with their own criteria from this four-digit code in Seattle, the Canadian group, and now the Commonwealth countries of Scotland, Australia, and Canada coming up with very similar criteria and all coming up with pretty much broadly the same, but very subtle differences in terms of cutoffs. The research to define a cutoff is not 100% clear cut. So there's a piece of work going on internationally where we're trying to define those cutoffs between where is the difficulty and where is the disorder level. But the broad parameters, we all agree on. What you see in the press sometimes is they say, oh, you guys can never agree. So clearly you don't know what we're talking about. Whereas actually, if you look at what we talk about, we all agree on the broad bits. What we're arguing about is where the cutoff should be. You know, And that's not to say that the thing doesn't exist. It's to say that we need to be clear about defining what is a disorder. And let's be fair, a disorder gets access to service. A difficulty often doesn't. So it's often defined by service allocation. Um, and it is not to do with an individual who has a difficulty in their life who needs support and help sometimes. So by 2000s, we're getting into talking about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And in the UK right now, in 2019, the Scottish government recognised that it was an issue for them in Scotland. We'd started the first clinic in 2009, built on my research clinic, but Scotland ran away with it because they invested in it in a way that England just didn't because England's complicated. Take us back to general practice, people on the ground who are kind of seeing patients. Take us back to what are the core features that can be agreed upon. So the core features, so it's worth looking for the face, let's be fair. 
that that is the most recognizable it's not the most severe presentation so you've got three classic facial features of a short fit palpable fissures which is uh, smaller eye openings uh, and elongated and thinner philtrum and a thinner upper lip vermilion they're the three core facial features and that like i said is only about two to five percent the other things that you're going to see is they're going to struggle it's the behavioral and the neurological stuff that's more common and so it's not just how it presents but when it presents and so what you will see is it's when you start to challenge their ability compared to what is being demanded of them that these presentations come out. So the first thing to get is, do, is there an alcohol history? If you've got a mother who doesn't drink alcohol, you can't have FASD. As simple as that. There's a nuance to that, which is probably going to be too much for primary care. But there's an epigenetic thing that can be transgenerational as well. And so there's something there which actually it could be potentially passed on from generation to generation. Nice guidance that came out in March this year, 2016. The first two of those are related to giving women information about alcohol in pregnancy and actually making note of alcohol consumption as you're going through to ask the question. There was a study done by National FASD. They said if you were asked and explained that actually this information is useful to the child later on in life, would you be happy to record it? About 90% of people said they would. Um, and so it, it's this is about information for the individual and choice down the line. It's not about stigmatizing people. It's not about trying to blame people. It's trying to educate and do that. So that's the first thing. Growth is not a good marker because it depends on when you see people. And a lot of people we see are from adopted and fostering group. Um, and it's very common in that group. So about potentially up to a third of that group may well have FASD. And and that's because people being taken to care these days because are because they've got problems and often drug and alcohol is part of that. So it's not unlike it's not unusual for that to be a risk factor. So um, there's other ones where we get into where effectively you're then looking at the neurological deficit, but the neurological ones are the hardest to measure. And this is where we all agree. There's about t nine to ten different domains that we look for in terms of brain functioning about educational attainment we talk so these are adaptive behaviors executive functioning working memory processing speed and there's a whole range of these things that you look at if you're meeting three or more of these criteria out of the nine to ten of them we say you've got enough information there to say that you've got a disorder because these have to be more than two standard deviations different from norm or what we call difference between different subtests of them now some people will not quite meet that threshold, but will still have difficulties. And that comes back into, do you have the difficulty of the disorder level? The other thing that you tend to find is their progression of development is shallower than a typical development trajectory. So they're slower at developing. And so if you see somebody at two, for example, the gap between themselves and normality and what you would test is not that great quite often. They're still running around. They can still use motor skills. They can still transfer. They can still do all those kind of things. They're still quite often pro-social. But there's little things that make you think this isn't quite right, but there's not enough yet there to, to say anything. By the time they get progressed further on, the gap gets bigger. So by eight, when they're starting to sit down and be in school and they're learning, you're seeing they're not settling. They've got the traits of ADHD coming out. They're struggling with the processing. Their educational attainment, the visual processing is slower. Their language skills are, are delayed. And at a primary care level, that's all I would expect from people is, is to try and 
listen and support the families to say, do you know what, I accept there's nothing on, I'm going to refer you on to a secondary care specialist to know what to do, because the assessment is more complex than would happen in primary care. Um, by the time you get to teenage life, the gap starts to get really big, but they still become teenagers and life still happens to them and they still want to be the same as everybody else. And, and they tend to get the secondary traumas of things not happening for them. And I've, I've described in, in sort of some of the work that we do, it's a psychiatric onion, and that's my term for it, um, where we talk about the brain level first and looking through the lens of the brain and then the layers of life that happen on top of that. Because it's not about one thing, it's about understanding the interplay with behavior. And that's where it gets complicated. You need to pull it apart a little bit. So basic diagnostics, community pediatricians are by far the most common referral pathway, but it's a neurodevelopmental assessment and each area in the country has a different process. Whether you go to CAMS or whether you go to, to a pediatrician, it depends on your local pathway. But ultimately it's about going to see somebody who can do the basic assessments. And the reality is when people say to you, oh, we're not commissioned for FASD, I bet you're already seeing it. And they just don't realize it. And the other thing that NICE has said is that everybody who has a history of alcohol or who's got this suspected presentation with the features and those kind of presentations should now get a neurodevelopmental assessment and they should have a multidisciplinary assessment. And so you need to have that in regional setups. The ultimate bit in the last part of NICE is that it says you must have a, man a management plan. And if you don't have a management plan, then what's the point? Because ultimately, it's about knowing what to do to make the lives of kids, their families better. And that's where our project at Salford is about to start, as we're starting a parenting intervention, which we've developed, and which will be something that families can take away and know how to manage these kids better, understanding it's a brain-related disorder first, and then understanding how to deal with the other bits on top of it. Yeah, thanks, Roger. And, and just thinking from a, a practical point of view in primary care, to be able to pick up um, all of these children um, from all of the diagnoses that we've mentioned there. Um, I thought um, we, we put together a bit of a made up case just to um, think through um, to, to follow a family. Um, so we we're thinking about a mum who's come in um, called Suzanne, who's got some concerns about her child, Jacob, and his development. Um, and Jacob's now seven um, and his behaviour has become really challenging. Um She's um says that he's struggling to get to sleep. He's a very fussy eater. Um, those are the things that she's coming in saying. What would be really important for clinicians in primary care to be asking in the history? What other things do they need to be checking about to um try and figure out what's going on with Jacob? Okay. So it's not an uncommon presentation that behavioral difficulties are why people come to be seen. So again, with anything, it's taking that developmental history in primary care, you're not gonna have the time to get into depth with it and that's going to be always your challenge but it's trying to understand with time and the relationship with somebody as to what those kind of background issues because actually FASD for example is a lifestyle condition you know what you're trying to find out is what was your lifestyle like before pregnancy were you fit and healthy did you drink did you smoke did you take drugs other things like that beforehand then you talk about the pregnancy stuff then you talk about the after stuff and i never do it in terms of do you drink in pregnancy you know that that's just a that's you're always going to get no of course it didn't what you talk about is about that lifestyle and you say okay was it a planned pregnancy did you take folic acid were you planning it you know most kids turn up when you're not planning it but you know you're not taking precautions kind of thing um if so when did you recognize the pregnancy? Because it's not about conception. It's about the recognition of when you do that test and you get a little blue line. You know, and that's what most people recognize and then change their behavior from. And so you're getting into it. And it's not, again, about stigmatizing. It's not about blame. It's about understanding. That mother has always already come to you knowing there's something wrong. 
what was interesting in our prevalence study, we obviously identified people who didn't realize that that was a part of the problem before, but they did come forward knowing that there was difficulties with the children. Very much the case that you've just described. And actually, whilst it was difficult and there is a period of grief, um, is that you need to support them through coming to terms with it. But actually, if they then know they can get help for their kids and that there is something that can be done, they come to terms with that. And, and this is something where actually, if you can understand how to scaffold the kids and give them a good quality of life, there's nothing to say you can't have a decent quality of life, a decent family life um, going forward. But recognizing the issues puts that in place because a lot of the behavioral difficulties that we're putting too much expectation and we're putting demands and challenges that they can't, ex can't deal with. And you often find you take those demands away or you scaffold the, the issues. These are kids who want to be helpful. They want to be good. They're not innately bad. They're not innately wanting to do stuff. It's trying to understand how best to manage them. Now, if you miss that and you progress down the line and you, they then get that secondary feeling of I'm not good enough, that's when you start to see behaviors for other reasons as well. And that's where the vulnerabilities and the exploitation come in. You know, these are groups who are exploited by criminal gangs all the time because they're looking for recognition. They're looking for, for engagement. But if you can recognize it early and you can support them, you can prevent a lot of that kind of stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that you would approach. Is It's that relationship. And, and you guys in primary care, because you have the potential to see the same families again, you can build a relationship with people, which you know in secondary care, it's sometimes harder to do. And that relationship with families is something that actually will allow you to progress through that. So it's the support that you can get for those mums and those families and helping the individual progress through the pathway is the biggest thing that I think primary care can do to help these families through it. It's really useful to consider what questions might lead to a kind of open discussion about the pregnancy um, without stigmatising. I always start with the, the things which are non stigmatizing so do you, were you put on any medication were you take did you smoke most people don't nowadays some do you know those kind of things and then you get to the alcohol as part of it and if there's an answer yes it's like medical students i remember when i was a medical student so i had my tick list and then you'd go through and you check it off now because you know it you somebody says yes you you follow the conversation oh, what would you drink what do you normally have what do you smoke you know it's just that conversational approach to it to actually try and explore some of those things and that will give you a guidance as to the kind of aspects so there's the here and now stuff but there's also well what else is going on you know if you've got a history or family history of genetic conditions in the family then maybe it's, it's most likely to be genetic disorder um, you know if everybody in the family has got that and your mother's uncle and everybody's all autistic then maybe it's there's a strong genetic component and just from their own point of view you may want to be referring to clinical genetics to to be seen about is there something they should know about their family genetics and inheritance plans it is about trying to understand and it is about trying to to try and help the whole situation because that mother coming to you the first thing you said is they've come to you because their kids got behavioral difficulties and they want a res resolution to it and what you're doing is exploring why that may be and trying to find reasons because there are differences in how you manage all these different things. Um, some things occurred to me as we're talking and I'm just thinking of different scenarios I've been in. Um, out of interest, I mean, you mentioned about asking the questions around the stigma and things quite nicely, um, but for kids who are older or at any kind of age of child who can hit, you know, understand what we're saying, do you normally ask questions around alcohol and things with them in the room or... So it's so it depends is the answer to that. 
as the child when the child's children are younger i don't tend to ask that question when they're in the room not all families want you to ask that question in front of them anyway because they haven't had the conversation themselves but those kids will know they've got difficulties in areas so i tend to badge it in terms of we're here to try and work out how what you can do to make those difficulties easier for the older ones when they start to know or if they know about it then i'll have the conversation about that and you can you can make that judgment call hmm. i think that i mean you alluded to it before when you mentioned about diagnoses and how much this is underdiagnosed i just wonder about that conversation around diagnosis of neurodiverse conditions and people thinking that we're overdiagnosing, and everyone's always got different views on that see the thing is is are you underdiagnosing, or did we just now recognize something that we didn't before um i think what we can show is that we can measure populations and we can show that actually there are like if I put somebody through a blood test, like so your HB1C, we can measure it, it's quantifiable, you know that's that's a diabetic kind of presentation. It's there. Mm-hmm. Because this is not so easy to do and you have to sit with somebody and do psychometric tests, people don't want to accept it as much. We say, well, you're either diagnosing it. And it's because it's based on phenomenology. And phenomenology is about overlapping symptom traits, and then saying, well, how do we cluster these together in a sufficient way? So do some people have diagnosed it? Absolutely, they do. And so we've got a, a group we're working with to deal with our waiting list diagnosis. Their autism diagnostic rates are 95% for the same populations are 60%. So I would argue they are overdiagnosing. So there are some people out there who do, but there are good places, and I would consider as one of them, that actually see what's really out there. And when you look at it, there's still a lot out there which is just simply underrecognized. And so you can argue this both ways. And both are probably true in one sense or not another. But it's definitely true that we are currently not diagnosing anywhere near the rates that exist out there. And then I'm just thinking about, like you say, it's a busy, um, it's a very short consultation that we've got with patients. And it's often a very, very long waiting list to try and get any kind of assessment. What sort of any hints, tips, things that would be really useful other than those things that you've already been through examination wise or investigation wise? So from a neurodevelopmental point of view, it's about gathering history and doing some of the forms that you can do. And there's some standard forms that can be done. From FASD point of view, it's about information gathering, making sure you've got the records of what was the alcohol exposure as much as possible, if you can get that? What were the other things that were going on? If you're from an adoptive and fostering kind of background, that's particularly important to get those kind of things and trying to get them some sort of your house in order about that. You know, it's getting genetic testing done because what you're doing with FASD, it's a diagnosis of exclusion as much as inclusion. So you have to rule things out to be confident that alcohol is the cause of the problem. So getting a referral in early for that whilst there's a waiting list for other things. The problem with neurodevelopmental disorders, it's not invested anywhere near the, the level that it needs to be for the for the demand. Um, and neurodevelopmental pathways are only starting to develop, but there are online resources that people can look up. And so post-diagnosis, there's a lovely website that was funded by the Department of Health, um, created by Seashell Trust in Manchester with National FASD called My FASD and Me. It's a really nice piece where somebody who is diagnosed can work through their own FASD. Um, There's a professionals course that's been developed by National FASD. There's various other resources around which are available. So there's various board games and other stuff that now people can do post-diagnosis. Autism ADHD has similar kind of things, online resources. 
the National Autistic Society provide a lot. My area, Autism Hampshire, do have a good website about things where you can get resources and information. I'm sure each area will have its own specialist information they can get. Um, the challenge that you're going to have is to try and interpret the stuff from other countries. And so I try and stick to the UK-based stuff if you can, because it's going to direct you towards what you can get here rather than the international ones. But having said that, some of the international broad management strategies are really useful. So for FASD, there was a, a book that was created in the mid to late 90s called um, Strategies, Not Solutions. And that was a really helpful book for people. And you can still download that. We'll pinch as many resources as we can from you. There's a new book which we just produced and so which we launched in March this year called The Time Is Now, uh, which was a good practice guide which we developed for, for, for different practitioners at different levels, which is available from the National FASD website as well. Just um, coming towards the end of um, our questions now, but we're just thinking from the point of view, as Sarah mentioned, the waiting list can be very, very long for these um, people and these families. Um, is there anything that primary care clinicians can be doing whilst families and patients are on the waiting list to try and um, help them or assist them or support them? So in theory, you guys in primary care can can help drive what you need from your area. So there's something about your voices saying we need to have more of this. And so that's one thing in terms of generically just pushing for commissioning to, to improve that. That's one aspect. Um, the other thing is about supporting the family through the process and explaining what's going on, being able to, 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 to intervene for them if they need to. You, know, you may not jump the queue because, you know, the, the, this is a, a, a non-urgent situation. So you're not getting into a life or death scenario so so delays don't change it from that perspective so it is therefore then about just trying to keep holding their hands through the process really um, if you can help them to gather information to support them through that if they come back you know there's a lot of comorbid anxiety and depression that goes with it and so if you're recognizing those don't wait for the diagnosis if there's an anxiety or depression then you can get on and treat and support them for those kind of things. You're right. Whilst we still have these excessively long waiting lists, which none of us want, and that's not going to change over. And I'm realistic enough to know that we're not suddenly going to get millions invested. Even if we did, we haven't got the people to do it. That's going to be a while before we start to get to a place where these are situations all over the country where people can access a pathway for a new developmental disorder and be seen within three months, which is what nice expectation is. So it's helping them through the process, basically. Brilliant. Thanks. And then our last question is always, um, do you have anything specific that you want people to take away from our talk today? What do you want them to remember when they go off on their day? If I was going to say things to take away is, one, FASD exists. Don't think it doesn't. Don't be afraid of asking the questions. Do it in a non-discriminatory way, ask in, a, in, in through a lifestyle kind of situation, but don't be afraid to ask the question because you're worried about it. Because a lot of people tell me they don't want to ask questions because they're afraid of asking and actually support people through that journey because it's not a primary care responsibility to do the diagnosis. It's, it's more complex than would normally fit into that consultation period. But supporting and being helpful to the family, the number of families I've said, my GP was brilliant because he just helped me through it and they just they understood and they listened to me. You know, that kind of stuff. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. Um. So yeah, that was a really interesting chat. Definitely put my brain back into gear after a little bit of time off, I have to say. <laughs> um, but what did you take away, Sarah? 
Yeah, I liked what you said when we'd finished, like, oh, that's a lot more... It was a lot more intellect than I've used recently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, me too, (laughs) to be fair. Um, So it was really... I I always find it interesting when um, you... We just really don't often have these conversations with somebody who's so specialised. So it is really interesting to hear from that perspective of somebody who's who can tell you the history and, and how these things have come about and where we're up to in the whole scheme of things. So it gives you so much more context to the conditions that we're seeing on the uh, the cold face of general practice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I liked taking a step back and learning about sort of how he classifies the neurodevelopmental disorders from etiological versus outcome-based so cause sort of medical causes versus outcome-based is is kind of what I took from that um so the outcome side of things are when we're looking at the behaviors or functional disorders uh functional issues that are sort of outcomes potentially from uh other things I I hadn't really thought about it like that necessarily for things like autism but obviously there's so much overlap in things as well um, and I really, I think that was so important. The ADHD is, um, diagnosis is so often not fully understood, uh, more so in, in female patients where it's less about the hyperactivity or impulsiveness. It's more about the attention deficits and how uh, under the radar that can fly. Yeah. And how important it is um, for, for ADHD because there is a potential to treat. Yeah. Um, I thought that was an interesting stunt on it as well. Yeah, that's it. Um and I, I thought it was interesting to talk about the um, about neurodiversity um, and just um, having that thought about the spectrum and about where we classify there being a, a disorder versus being slightly atypical from what we would consider the norm in society. Yeah. Um, and I just thought that was interesting because I've not really um, thought about these new terms that are kind of coming up and being used more often, but that really helped um, me classify it a bit better. Uh, yeah, and it, it's not just necessarily about standard deviations away from the kind of what you'd consider norm. It's actually we're all quite diverse, um, but it's there's the difference between difficulty um, and a disorder and that kind of functional aspect of it. I thought was really interesting. Yeah. What else is there? Oh, that the um, um, when, when we're talking about um, the developmental coordination disorder or the historical dyspraxia, um, the fact that um, potentially that's more picked up within um, educational settings and we might not know about it as much in healthcare, but it does have quite high links to other comorbidities and that's why it's important for us to be aware of. thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, I also wasn't massively aware. I haven't got a huge amount of patients with a diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Um, I'm aware of it and actually did think that it was before this talk did just think it was kind of you can diagnose it based on sort of specific characteristics facially and things like that Um, although yeah I actually I can think of a few patients now um, that you know I wonder if it has been missed or they're on a very long waiting list and you know might not yet have been assessed so that's that's quite interesting to think of and also how do you ask about that I thought was really nicely covered I'd kind of like to you know sit in and shadow one of his uh, clinics because then you could sort of see that in action as well and getting resources I love bookmarking resources that are really really important I think I was just yeah I was just surprised by how common um it is that mm. uh, that prevalence that they say up to four percent of the population that's quite a lot I would not have put it up there but the fact that actually very few of them have the classic facial features that we get taught about in medical school um so I thought that was really useful to cover and um, and then just generally whenever we're talking about history from a neurodevelopmental point of view not to just ask from birth onwards and what's happening now but to go back to that pre-pregnancy stage and to make sure you ask those questions um pre-pregnancy pregnancy pregnancy, birth and onwards. Um, I thought that was just quite a nice framework for um, taking the history. 
absolutely um so yeah thank you all so much for listening and i hope you all enjoyed it if you've got any feedback or any uh, comments please do get in touch through all the usual channels through twitter or our survey or our email address which is always at the end of our episode description and yeah really good feedback over the summer thank you so much for everyone and actually this was requested as well so it's nice when it all kind of links up so yeah thank you so much till next time i'm primary care knowledge boost This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.